Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, Kinfolk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we're going to talk about who the new number one or the old number one is at the University of Texas playing quarterback, but why he's the guy and what kind of weapons does he have around him. We are also going to get into my week one going into week two. USFL power rankings. I was in Birmingham for a couple of games for the kickoff of the season. I saw some things. I took some notes. I learned some stuff. We'll go through one through eight, which teams I think are off to the best start this season and which ones have a chance to play for the championship in July this year. But first, going to talk with Fox Sports' Big Ten college football and basketball reporter, Michael Cohen, who was at Ohio State spring game this past Saturday. And as always... I want to talk about quarterbacks. Let's talk to Mike. I'm pleased to be joined by Fox Sports' Big Ten football and college basketball reporter Michael Cohen. His draw's too thick for rock. He's too old school for new country. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, brother. I'm good. So you had the good fortune of going to the Ohio State spring game this past Saturday. And I'm going to start with uh, the question I'm sure that everybody posed to Ryan Day. Who's the starting quarterback? Yeah, I mean, that that is the question, right? It's been the question pretty much ever since the day that C.J. Stroud announced that he was going to the NFL. And the answer right now is to be determined. However, I think if you look at the body of work and you look at some of the, the signs and sort of read between the lines a little bit, it seems like right now Kyle McCord has that inside track on the starting job over Devin Brown. You know, the fact that he was out there for the spring game, I think, is a big boost in his favor. Devin Brown, unfortunately, had a, a minor injury on his throwing hand and had a, a very minor surgical procedure to fix that. So, you know, in the biggest moment uh, of the spring so far, Devin Brown wasn't able to be out there. And just from what you hear from, from players and coaches and some of the writers that cover the team on a daily basis, consistency-wise is where Kyle McCord has really sort of separated himself a little bit. Uh, from Devin Brown. But, you know, Ryan Day said that the competition is not over. It will continue through the summer and resume, you know, uh, on full blast once the team gets back for for fall camp in July and August. Uh, but right now, you know, if, if you ask me who's going to line up in, in September, I, I would go with Kyle McCord. I think you'd be right. I've been pushing this from the start, which is the number one. He He has a start, which I don't think people put enough emphasis on. Right. And he played well against Akron. I know it's Akron, but he played well, 300 yards passing. And he has a great rapport with the best wide receiver in the sport today in Marvin Harrison Jr. For those of you who don't know, they played high school football together at St. Joe's, won a couple of state championships together. I got to believe you want to take advantage of that chemistry. But 
I'm looking at the stats that were in your story on FoxSports.com where you can go check it out. And he is 18 of 34 for 184 with a TD. That doesn't sound like the guy that's going to start. Do you look like the guy that's going to start? You know, he he didn't. And, and that's the interesting part about this because we don't really know how much was on him and how much was on the offensive line. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, but just to, to put it out there so people can start thinking about it, the offensive line really let him down a lot on Saturday. And so was Kyle McCord inaccurate? Was he unable or unable to escape the pressure or was there just so much going on around him because of breakdowns up front? It's really hard to say. Now there were some really nice moments. He had a beautiful touchdown pass to Carnell Tate uh, in the fourth quarter. It was about a 30, 35 yarder down the left sideline into the end zone. Uh, He showed, I think, enough uh, maneuverability to sort of erase the idea that that he can't move the way that Devin Brown can. Now, if you put him in a in a test or, or have him, you know, work out at the combine, Devin Brown's going to look better. But in terms of maneuvering enough to get away from people in the pocket, to to escape to the sideline and throw on the run, you know, Kyle McCord proved that he has that and he can do that and that that won't be a concern. Um, so it's interesting because Kyle McCord does have the inside track. He looks like the guy that's going to start on September, but in September, excuse me. But what you saw in Columbus over the weekend was not what you'd want to see from the guy that's going to be in that position in a couple of months. Yeah, I don't think he made that decision easier for Ryan Day in the summer months ahead. But you mentioned Carnell Tate, who is a five-star true freshman wide receiver, also underscores once again the recruiting that Brian Hartline has done in that wide receiver room that's going to feature Marvin Harrison Jr. and Mecca Buka, Julian Fleming, and Carnell Tate. Briefly, um, Brian Hartline got into an ATV crash, went to the hospital, says he's fine. But did he have control of the plays during this scrimmage, or was it Ryan Day? That's a really good question, and, and that was posed to Ryan Day after the game. And he kind of gave a, a little bit of a bizarre answer. He said that some of it was scripted, that some of it was called, that Ryan Day was on the headset, but that Brian Hartline had a little more control. So it wasn't like a clear-cut, yes, Brian Hartline called the plays, which was, I think, what people were expecting or looking for. And so, you know, Ryan Day kind of trotted out the same line that he said throughout the spring, which is over the summer they're going to evaluate how things went in spring and make a decision on the play calling. I still think Brian Hartline's going to get a chance to call the plays, but it doesn't seem quite as clear as it might have a, a couple of months ago. It, it's almost like Ryan Day wants a chance to reflect on it before he really makes that choice final. I'm going to put a pin in that because we're going to circle back to Ryan Day and Brian Hartline in a second. But you touched on the offensive line play and how it wasn't that great in the spring game. Again, glorified practice, but they are losing two outstanding tackles in Dewan Jones and Paris Johnson Sr., who both could end up getting drafted in the first round, if not in the first half of the draft. Dewan Jones is a mountain of a man, so much so that uh, my producer, producer of this show, Tyler Wojak, was looking at him when we were down there to watch Ohio State play. I always go to RJ. Do you see the size of this man? I said, yes, that is how they grow them. Do they have someone that could pick up the slack from a talent standpoint, if not from a, let's say, experience standpoint right now? Yeah, that's that's another really good question. And I wrote about it earlier this week on FoxSports.com because what I wanted to get across to people is that even though the quarterback competition is, is obviously the sexiest, the most interesting, the most enthralling topic, I would, if I'm Ryan Day, I would be more concerned about what I have on the offensive line than who's going to be throwing the passes right now because it stands to reason that at a school like Ohio State, you know, either Devin Brown or Kyle McCord, if they've got plenty of time back there, they're going to be good enough considering the weapons that they have. You mentioned that that ridiculous run of wide receivers that they have that nobody else in the country can match. 
But the problem is up front, and the problem isn't just at the offensive tackle positions. They've got, I would say, half a problem at left tackle, a full problem at right tackle, and center is a little bit iffy as well, another Mm -hmm. position that they had to replace with Luke Whipler coming out and Ohio State not expecting him to enter the NFL draft. So they're having to replace 60% of the offensive line, and I think you could argue the three most important positions on that offensive line. You have your bookends at left and right tackle, and then you have the person who has the ball in his hand at the start of every play and has to call the protections and point things out. So at left tackle, they have Josh Fryer, a former three-star recruit right now. At right tackle, it's been a two-man race between Tegra Shibola and um, uh, Carson Hinsman's at center right now, but it's a two-man race at right tackle, and it's just it's a it's a strange situation for them. I don't really know exactly how this is going to go. There's talk of moving Donovan Jones, the left guard, out to left tackle to see if that allows them to get the best five on the field. So it's it's a it's a rough situation at offensive line right now, and I know that's not going to attract the most headlines, but to me that is the headline for Ohio State between now and the fall. How do they fix that? How do they make it so that whoever wins the quarterback battle? doesn't run for their life every Saturday. Donovan Jackson's a great player to have anywhere. Like, frankly, like I love that dude coming out of high school. The same thing with Tegra. They have dudes. They just got to develop them. But on the other side of the ball, we know what they have, right? The defensive line ought to be pretty doggone good with JT, Tui Moloau, Jack Sawyer, and the like. But that defense let them down last year, and you can make an argument that is the reason they didn't play for a national championship when it comes down to it. Did you see any, well, let's call it, um, let's call it anticipation from Jim Knowles that his defense is going to be outstanding in 2023? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to dissect here. I think, first of all, the defensive line has been fantastic throughout the spring. And so you mentioned the two edge rushers in JT Tuimoluau and Jack Sawyer. But then in the middle, you have Mike Hall Jr. and Tyleek Williams, who have just wreaked havoc throughout the spring. They've caused all kinds of problems up front. Mike Hall Jr. in particular is looking like a player who, if he plays in the season the way he is right now this will be his last year of college football he'll have an opportunity to go to the draft because he's playing so well I think in the middle when you look at Tommy Eichenberg and Steel Chambers that's about as solid as you're going to get as for an inside linebacker pairing in the country and the real question marks are the secondary right I mean they have five or six or seven guys that have cycled through the safety positions at the corner position. You have Denzel Burke, who is a player that people have said is, is exuding more confidence this season is looking like the next potential lockdown Ohio state corner, but it's the secondary still that gives me some concern that gives me some pause. The question in my mind is can the front seven get home quickly enough and often enough to where it doesn't matter as much what's going on on the back end of the defense. And that's kind of what we've seen with Michigan the last two years, where you could argue that on their defense, Defenses, the weakest part has been the secondary, but they've been able to generate and manufacture enough pressure to where it covers that concern a little bit. I want to pick up the Michigan point here in a little bit, but I want to stick with Ohio State while we're here. A lot of the noise around Ryan Day has been these O's to Jonathan, or excuse me, Jonathan Cooper, to John Cooper, right? Jonathan Cooper played defensive end at Ohio State. John Cooper was head coach. But John Cooper also had some ties to the University of Tulsa where I went to school, so I'm kind of sensitive about it. But I'm also sensitive in that he wasn't bad at Ohio State. He just didn't win every big game that they wanted him to win at Ohio State. And it feels like that is the thing that is plaguing Ryan Day. And you get Gene Smith coming out saying, this is our head coach. And I'm going, that seems weird to say after you're playing a college football playoff semi and doggone near beating Georgia. But that seems to be real in Columbus. Did it feel real to you that Ryan Day is something like on a hot seat? Isn't it crazy that if that 
field goal against Georgia goes through the uprights and then they go and win the national title potentially by beating TCU. This conversation is would be silly if we were sitting here having this conversation. We'd be talking about the reigning national champion and the reigning national champion coach. But instead, we're talking about a guy that has dropped back-to-back games in Michigan uh, against Michigan, excuse me, but not only lost to Michigan, done so in kind of embarrassing fashion where he's been beaten at the line of scrimmage, his teams have been out-toughed, out-coached, out-executed. And so it's this strange scenario where he's still recruiting at a very, very high level. Pretty much only Alabama and Georgia have been above them consistently the last couple of years. He's winning every game except the last two against Michigan. And he fell short, you know, when he had a chance against Georgia in a national semifinal. Is he on a hot seat? I think it's a little silly to say that. I really do. I just don't buy it with how well he's done. But there are arguments to make that if you look at the actual recruiting numbers, he's actually fallen slightly farther behind Alabama and Georgia score-wise, not necessarily ranking-wise, but prospect score-wise. So if that margin is getting a little bit wider and he's starting to fall behind Michigan, it sounds crazy, but you know I think there is a slight argument for people to at least point to. Would I get rid of him? No. I think he's a good football coach. I think he's done a really nice job there, and I think he'll continue to do a nice job there. But if he drops another one to Michigan this year and doesn't win the Big Ten, for a third straight year, it starts to get into a territory of where you say, well, if you can't win when it matters the most, are you the right guy to be in Columbus? Man, it's tough. That's that's tough. There's no way of getting around that. And I say this to a lot of folks, myself growing up an Oklahoma fan, being an Oklahoma fan, because look here, Texas beats Oklahoma 49-0, finishes 8-5, and five, and that's a good season for them. Oklahoma goes six and seven for the first time and having a losing record in the 21st century. And it is DEFCON one. I'm looking at Ohio state. I'm going, Hey guys, uh, you've been pretty doggone good basically for the past 10 years. And you didn't get off to the start that Jim Harbaugh got off to in Michigan. He's been able to flip that around and make that work for them. But this point about being out physical, being out toughed, right? Even being called soft is going around uh, at major college football programs. Oklahoma, again, being one of them. We got to be tougher. I don't know how much tough can figure into it when you are really getting pushed off the ball. Do you think that it's about their mentality from what you've seen? Or do you think it really is about that player-to-player ranking inside of what stars you have versus what Alabama and Georgia have? You know, that that's the, the question that's really hard to answer because if you look at the, the team that has blown them off the ball the last two seasons, Michigan hasn't beaten them with guys that are ranked higher in the recruiting rankings. Right. They've that's just right. done a better job with player development, with, with scheme, with execution. So, you know, I would just say that I think the the image that Harbaugh cuts and the way he carries himself and the way that trickles down to the program, it's it's easier to buy a message of toughness from Jim Harbaugh, I think, than it is to buy a message of toughness from Ryan Day. And that's not anything against Ryan Day and the way he carries himself. It's just that Jim Harbaugh has that ruggedness to him. He still has a wad of dip in his mouth at every game. You know, he wants to get out there and do drills with the players. I think that it's just easier to 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 wring out every little piece of toughness, every little ounce of toughness from guys if you kind of exude it a little bit more. And so maybe that's it. Maybe it's just not quite trickling down from the top the way that Ryan Day wants it to. But if he does give up the play calling duties, that gives him a chance to sort of spread himself a little bit wider across the program and be sort of this CEO type, which is what the which is the argument that Ryan Day has made for potentially giving up the play calling because 
he gets so wrapped up in game plan specific duties from Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, leading into the weekend that he has admitted that he's out of touch with certain things with the defense. He doesn't have as much face-to-face contact with players on the other side of the ball as he would like. So maybe that makes the difference. Maybe if his message is being more directly communicated to other position groups and not just the offense, perhaps that allows the team to be tighter, more cohesive and play with, you know, a, a better sense of unity. It's, it's to be determined, but you know, maybe that's the way that they can do it. And, and if it works, then, then, then that's the right choice made by Ryan Day and a difficult choice for somebody who is a great play caller and who loves calling plays. Outstanding analysis from Fox Sports' Big Ten college football and basketball reporter Michael Cohen. Mike, thanks for making time to join the show, dude. Always, always, RJ. Thank you very much for having me. My thanks again to Michael Cohen, who is outstanding in this profession. He has been one of my favorite guys to get to know since joining the team here at Fox Sports. Please go read his work. He's done exceptional work in covering Michigan and Ohio State in particular, but also because that dude has his ear to the ground in a way that, frankly, makes him a must-follow on the Twitters as well as a must-read at FoxSports.com. All right, now we're going to transition to another, well, tremendously big story in college football, and that is who is the University of Texas's starting quarterback in 2023, Steve Sarkeesian, chose not to bury the league, not to make this a bigger issue than it needed to be, and say Quinn Ewers is going to be our guy to start 2023 for the Texas Longhorns. And I think this is a big deal. One, Ewers showed enough in these 15 practices to convince Steve Sarkeesian that he needs to keep the job, and he is still their best chance to win a bunch of football games in 2023, and this is a pivotal year for Texas, like Oklahoma, who is going to play their last year of Big 12 football this year, and they got some games on the schedule that, well, frankly, they need to win. OU versus Texas being one, Texas versus Houston, which I've gone into, but I thought what was interesting about this is the way that Steve Sarkeesian talked about Quinn Ewers and his play and why he felt comfortable saying this is our guy. One, he played every snap with the first-team offense in not just the first half, but in the game, right? He was 16-23 for 195 and a TD, and Sark called that efficient, which was apparently evident because he hit a 46-yarder to Xavier Worthy, who was his best wide receiver and the best wide receiver at Texas last year for a TD. He also threw a, well, six catches to, excuse me, threw six passes to A.D. Mitchell. Adonai is what we're probably going to end up calling that man more often than not, but he's A.D. Mitchell transferring in from Georgia, outstanding wide receiver, and frankly, a mismatch nightmare if we're getting down to it, because I think that's a guy that is in position to make a lot of plays for them, probably in that slot, that wide position, the kind of position that I thought you might see Ajay Hall before he went sideways, before Jaleel Billingsley and whatnot went sideways. I think he is the guy that they're expecting to be on either side of Xavier Worthy and say Isaiah Nayer, who's coming back from injury and after transferring in from Wyoming last year, was one of the better gets in the 2022 transfer portal season. And I really am interested to see how Quinn Ewers uses all these weapons around him because along with A.D. Mitchell and Xavier Worthy, Jonte Cook is also going to be a dude that is out there challenging for snaps at wide receiver and Marcus Washington is back. They got a core, but that's always the same thing with Texas. We always know they have talent. They're always going to be one of the most talented football teams in the country. It's about can you win more games than you lose? Can you play for Big 12 championships? Can you play for the first time in the college football playoff? On the defensive side of the ball, Anthony Hill showed up like I thought he would. That is a true freshman that 
man, pull the trigger. He's going to fire off the ball. I get a lot of Kenneth Murray Jr. feels from him. I think next to a guy like Jalen Ford, who was an All-American last year, Pete Kwiatkowski is building toward a defense that could be really, really fun to watch and frankly can challenge for the Big 12 championship as I think they could challenge most every year. That's why it's really frustrating to talk about Texas because until they play football games, you don't know much. But when they play football games, they can show you we're this close to beating Alabama. As a matter of fact, Ewers doesn't get hurt. They probably beat Alabama on the 40 acres. And goodness me, that would mean that Quinn Ewers was able to do something that Colt McCoy wasn't ever able to do, which is beat Nick Saban in Alabama. And he got close to his first try. Now they got to go to Bryant Denny in Tuscaloosa and try to do it again. But I also believe that is the reason why Quinn Ewers is the starter. But more interesting is not that Arch Manning is not the starter. It's that Malik Murphy is the number two. Malik Murphy, who has all the tools to be an outstanding college football quarterback, if not an outstanding pro. He has the size, the arm strength, and the mobility to really push Texas to another level. 9-13, 165 with a TD on Saturday. That's a guy that you now feel comfortable throwing in, right? That you didn't feel comfortable throwing in last year, especially you know knowing Hudson Card is now at Purdue, probably going to win the starting job up there. I've wanted to see Malik Murphy play college football for a long time. It feels like if something happens to Ewers, they're already prepared to go to him, and he provides something different that teams would have to guard against, frankly. I mean, Quinn Ewers is going to step back, scan the field, and try to throw darts. Malik Murphy might go through his progressions and then take off running because he can't. He's that big. He's that fast. He's that powerful. And that's, lastly, this really is a good thing for Arch. Now, I know those of y'all that are on that Arch Manning train probably want to have a word with the conductor about the pace of this thing and how quickly they're going to get to their destination. But I think Arch's plan was always to be an SEC quarterback. And I, I never doubted that. You saw enough of him at Isidore Newman to know, hey, he's got the tools, but you're still going to have to teach this dude how to play big-time college football. And I wanted him to have the redshirt year because I want good things for Arch. I want him to have an opportunity. Now, next year, when Quinn Ewers might go to the NFL, might be selected in the NFL draft, then you got a duel between Malik Murphy and Arch Manning and how much more is Arch Manning able to show this time next year is going to tell us a whole bunch about who the starting quarterback is in 2024. And then I was really curious about the running back situation at Texas. And man, they're loaded. I, you wouldn't think so. Losing B. John Robinson, who we all believe probably going to get selected in the first round because he's that great a tailback. But we thought that usually, you know, you're going to have somebody that is that pivotal to your offense? It's going to mean a big hole in your offense. What are you going to fill that with? Turns out they're going to fill it with maybe six guys that can rotate in, which kind of makes that running back room bulletproof. Cedric Baxter was a great tailback in high school. He showed enough. Jaden Blue apparently has made some leaps this year. Keelian Robinson, Jonathan Brook, Kai Wood, Savion Red. At one point, I was going, do they have something behind Bijan? Turns out, yeah, they've got six behind Bijan, which leads me to my favorite Texas running back story. So, Adrian Peterson, looking to go to the University of Texas. Always going to go to the University of Texas. Mac Brown told him straight up, hey, look, dog, uh, we love you. We'd love to have you at the University of Texas. The offer stands. But Cedric Benson's coming back for another year, and we're going we're gonna to be loyal to him. And that's the move, because Cedric Benson was an 1,800-yard rusher and one of the best college football players that anybody's ever seen, let alone Texas tailback behind Ricky Williams and, of course, of course, Earl Campbell. And that is how Adrian Peterson ends up ultimately at Oklahoma. 
They had a need. He could fill it. He rushed for 1,900 yards. That's <laughs> a freshman. It's just stupid. My God. But it's depth, right? They have the depth to be great. They have the depth to be outstanding. And you know what else I saw? Depth being a big storyline, a big, well, issue, frankly. It's in the USFL, right? The USFL was really fascinating to me last year because you're dealing with a limited roster. And this year, they're still dealing with a limited roster. But in watching the USFL over the weekend, I got to talk with Birmingham Stallions coach Skip Holtz. And one of the things that he expressed to me was, RJ, the free agent pool this year is as good as the guys we were drafting in the first round last year. That means the quality of player has gotten so much better just in a year, especially with the attention that Kevontae uh, Turpin's rise in the USFL had done and pro bowler with Dallas Cowboys will do that for you. But we've had a number of guys that played in this league that are on NFL rosters as we speak. The defensive player of the year was on the Birmingham Stallions last year. He's a Chicago Bear now. That's a great way to get into, I think, my USFL power rankings going into week two after week one. And we're just going to start at number one and work our way down to number eight. Number one, the Birmingham Stallions. My goodness, they are 12-1 and since the start of last season. One loss, and they won the championship. They look like the defending champs. They lost their starting quarterback in their week one game against the New Jersey Generals for a consecutive year. And for a consecutive year, they had a guy come off the bench that could pick them up and take them where they wanted to go. Last year, that guy starting was Alex Magoo, who was out after eight snaps. Jamar Smith came off the bench, led them to a comeback win. Or I should say a second half win because it's 14 up at halftime. And then this year, J.M.R. Smith goes down with a dislocated finger. Alex Magoo comes in off the bench, has 119 total yards and a TD. They lost their best offensive player, not quarterback, in Marlon Williams. Wide receiver had the most catches and the most TDs on the team last year. And they didn't miss a beat. They had guys like Austin Watkins coming in, Myron Mitchell coming in. You got to see C.J. Marable. Didn't really have to use Bo Scarborough that much. And then the defense that John Chavis filled it is as good as it was last year. They beat New Jersey 27-10 to 10 in front of 20,000 fans at Protective Stadium. Birmingham is a football city, tremendous football city. I had a lot of fun watching this game play out. But right now, it's really difficult to see how the Stallions don't at least make it back to the playoffs, if not are the team to beat when we're talking about the USFL championship. I think the comp for college right now, if we were going to do this, would be Georgia. It doesn't matter who the quarterback really is. It matters because it doesn't matter because the defense is so good. And you got guys like Scooby Wright leading that defense, who frankly didn't have to do a whole lot in that game, but also had to leave the game a little bit early in uh, to make way for a calf strain he had uh, suffered early in the year. But my goodness, man, uh, I don't understand how we're going to keep talking about Birmingham Stallions every week, but we're going to try. Certainly got to try it. That's the best team in the USFL. Number two, I got the Philadelphia Stars, who, frankly, look every bit as good offensively as they did last year. Case Cookies comes back for a second year after starting the year last year as a second stringer. He was 20-29, 212 yards, three TDs, 27-23 win against the Memphis Showboats in front of 30,000 fans. In Memphis, remember, the USFL has expanded to four hub cities after just one last year. Memphis, Canton, and Detroit fall in with Birmingham. They got dudes on the outside, too. Devin Gray, a former Cincinnati wide receiver, led All-Stars receivers with 77 catches, uh, excuse me, 77 yards on nine catches. And that's 
That's ridiculous. When you think about, they got Corey Coleman out there too. Yes, Bolitnikoff Award winner, Corey Coleman at Baylor. And they got Jordan Sewell, who was their leading receiver last year. He didn't catch a pass until the second half of that game. And oh, by the way, Chris Rowland, a wide receiver on that team last year, playing a little tailback this year. That dude broke Jerry Rice's HBCU record for receptions in a season at Tennessee State with 104. So Bart Andrus has what he needs. Addition to my goodness, they got Matt Colburn out of Wake Forest and Dexter Williams out of Notre Dame in the backfield. The offense is going to be the offense. Defensively, Channing Stribling out of Michigan continues to be what I think is the best defender in this league, especially 2023. He had a pick, right? He had seven last year. He looks like he's going to get at least that many this year. Number three, I got the Michigan Panthers. They are already halfway to their 2022 win total under Mike Nolan. They beat the Houston Gamblers 29-13 in a comeback victory. Josh Love, who kind of bounced around the USFL last year with the Maulers and then with the Panthers, was out there slowing darts, 18-20 of 20 for 215 yards with three TDs. He also threw a 34-yard touchdown pass to Joe Walker, who had six catches for 105 yards and made up for a month punt that led to a gambler's touchdown. Shout out to the Panthers, who are looking like challenging in the North Division. Number four on the list, I got the New Orleans Breakers. Breakers quarterback McLeod Bethel-Thompson became the league's first 300-yard passer, and frankly, he was helped because in the first half, the Breakers didn't look good. As a matter of fact, New Orleans head coach John DeFilippo had said this was the worst half of football that, or the most painful half of football that he's ever been a part of offensively, but the defense was so good against the Pittsburgh Maulers. They didn't allow a single TD, even coming up with a fourth and one stop on the goal line for a turnover on downs. Really, really interested to see what McLeod Bethel Thompson can do in this league. That is a two-time Canadian Football League Great Cup Award winner and a guy that's passed for over 4,000 yards as a professional. He's 34. I believe he's the oldest guy in the USFL too. And shout out to him, who is partnered with Chinaka Hodge, who is the head writer for Marvel's Ironheart. Yes, about Riri Williams. I get to talk with her and McLeod about their partnership and how she's working. And she's living in Birmingham, supporting her partner with her child, their child, Aziza. Uh, look for that story on foxsports.com. Number five on the list for me, the Memphis Showboats. I think Todd Haley has some work to do and figure out his quarterback situation. We went back and forth between Brady White and, my goodness, I just, I did not think that we would be talking about Brady White starting in Memphis again, especially as a professional being a Memphis Tiger, but I also could see it. You just want a little bit more consistency. Now, they had former Arkansas tailback Alex Collins doing a lot of the work on the ground, and when they could get the ball in his hands, either him catching it or him running it, they looked okay to good, but it's Carnell Lake's defense that I think vaults them to this number five spot. Carnell Lake, who is a former defensive player of the year for the Pittsburgh Steelers and another member of that Pittsburgh Steelers family that Todd Haley is a part of, his defense sacked Case Cookus five times. I mean, two of them came from John William, Jordan Williams excuse me, and linebacker Greg Reeves. I think if the offense can catch up to the defense, they can challenge in the South Division. And certainly them being a home team, one of the four home teams in the USFL can't hurt anything. Birmingham won the championship last year, played all its games Birmingham until the playoffs. Number six on the list for me, Houston Gamblers. Houston quarterback Kenji Bahar is the guy, but you need more out of him. You need more than 109 passing yards from your starting quarterback. Outside of that, they look good running the ball. Former Utah and Oklahoma tailback 
TJ Pledger scored TDs, two TDs, and rushed for 41 yards in the game. At one point, Pledger was averaging a TD every four and a half carries. There's room for improvement on both sides of the ball for them, but, I mean, it's after week one. The New Jersey Generals uh, at number seven might be the one team that many people didn't expect to be in the bottom half of the rankings after week one because they played so well last year. But Mike Riley's got a quarterback situation he's got to figure out. He started DeAndre Johnson. The offense didn't go as well. He tried to play Dakota Prukop. The offense didn't go as well. But they're still able to run the ball, right? They got USFL reigning offensive player of the year, Darius Victor, back. And the Generals rushed for 197 yards against the Birmingham Stallions, who, as I said, that's stout defense. So he figures out the quarterback position. I think they're going to be okay. And then rounding out eight is the Pittsburgh Maulers, who frankly are a good football team. They just need a quarterback to take control of their offense. I Quarterback James Morgan coming out of Florida International, like Alex Magoo and Troy Williams, who last I last saw at Utah and ended up transferring to Santa Monica, combined for 78 passing yards against New Orleans. You can't win too many football games if your quarterbacks are going to pass for 78 yards combined. But the Maulers also scored the first defensive and special team TDs of the USFL season. Matter of fact, former Alabama linebacker and first-round draft pick Reuben Foster shot the gap, knocked ball loose from tailback. I believe Anthony Jones, New Orleans Breakers running back, had the misfortune of fumbling the ball. Kayava Tizino gets on top of it, and they get six in the end zone the hard way. Really great story for Foster, who had not played football in over four years. Like, we're talking going back to October of 2018, and now he's the number 10 in the middle of that defense. Take for that what you will. I also think that the Razzle Dazzle is going to pay for them. Uh, I think that if they are able to capitalize on special teams in this league, and they should be with returns being such a big deal of it and your average field position being around 35-yard line, they ought to be more than capable of making a run at the playoffs. Also, shout out to Ray Horton, who had his first head coaching gig this season with the Maulers, like John Filippo, and just managed to come out on losing in here. And I asked him, Coach, what does it mean to you to have your first game as the guy in charge? And by the way, his son, Jaron Horton, is the defensive coordinator and assistant head coach. He says, hey, man, it's players. It's not about me. I wanted to win for them. We got to be a little bit better here and there, but they're close. Man oozes class. I really enjoy every last one of these guys that I've got to meet. A few more coaches that I'm yet to meet, but this league is exciting. It's fun. I'm having a great time with the rules. I'm having a great time with the way that people want to keep the game going. And these coaches are very much interested in you, fans, watching the games and enjoying their teams. All right. That is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. Be sure to check out our Friday episode where we will have an interview with USFL, well, linebacker and Birmingham Stallions linebacker, Scooby Wright, who, among other things, uh, is having a good time posting <laughs> posting photos of himself and Nate Holly playing stepbrothers. I got to ask him about that. And also be sure to check out what I got to tell you about Tony Petiti, who is the new Big Ten commissioner. And frankly, I don't know that there was a better hire to make because once we get into the background of Tony Petiti, you're going to understand how that man being in charge of the Big Ten only means good things for the Big Ten.
All right, my thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak. Our senior producer is Catherine Donnelly. Our director is Kyle Holly. Our lead of screening is Jack Coakley. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. Our production assistant is Kiara Santana. Our intern is Stefan DeLaGuardia. I'm RJ. We will see y'all on Friday. Deuces.